as we jump into this, this next installment of our uh, collection of sermons that we've been calling Roots, uh, we want to say the Nicene Creed together. We've been saying this all uh, each Sunday uh, during this collection, and uh, it's a reminder to us of some of the basics of what we believe, and that's really what we've been doing is exploring as a, as a community, as a body of, of believers. We've been taking a, a close look at the key things, the main roots that we want to have of our theological faith and belief system so that we can grow strong in our understanding and grow strong in our faith. And I hope these messages have been a blessing to you. And uh, we're going to jump in today, but first let's read the Nicene Creed all together. It's going to be on the screen. Read it nice and strong together. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And everybody gave a big girthy, amen, amen. Well, today I want to bring a message to you entitled Center Stage, The Encore. Go ahead, put it in the chat. Center Stage, The Encore. The Encore. And today I want to focus on that part of the creed where we say, for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. There's going to be an encore. I... Uh, I know a lot of you parents can relate, and especially you moms out there, you can relate. Nothing is as precious as seeing your kids kind of perform. Uh, our oldest daughter, Alyssa, is now 13 years old, but when she was much younger, age four, age five, uh, we lived in North Carolina, and we lived near uh, my sister's. Uh, and my oldest sister happens to have two daughters, a, a year and two years just older than our daughter Alyssa. And every time we had family gatherings, you could count on two things. Number one, there would be a whole lot of laughter, uh, sometimes from jokes that can't be aired on national television or publicly stated. Uh, so there's always lots of laughter when my family gets together. And number two, you always could count on uh, that children would put on a quote-unquote performance. 
And our daughters would be center stage of those performances. They'd get all dressed up. They'd come prancing down in their fake high heel shoes. And they would command the attention and say, we have a performance for you. And everybody would stop. And we'd turn our attention. And we'd pull out our cell phones. And we do have some discriminating evidence of said videos that will be played one day for all of their boyfriends and prom dates. And it is blackmail material as parents. And all the parents, if you haven't already gotten incriminating evidence on your children, do it. It's going to be well, well worth it. But they would come down all dolled up and beautiful, and they would sing songs that they made up, obviously. And they would sing, uh, do these dances and one-act plays that were being made up, mostly as they went along. And we would laugh and ooh and awe and tell them how wonderful they did. And, and uh, quite often, us dads would begin to clap right in the middle of it. Because we figured if we were clapping, they would stop. And then our wives would hit us and tell us to stop, and you really just can't blame a guy for trying, really. Uh, but we would enjoy so much their, their, their performances. But we never really knew when they were ending or, or if they were to end. And those are often those, those moments. Have you ever been uh, to, to a movie and uh, you thought it was over, but they, they like psyched you out and it wasn't really over. They had more to show you. Or uh, you went to a, a performance and they the band came out for an encore performance. Uh, I think Jesus has an encore performance on, on its way. And what we see in the first act of Jesus' life, where he took center stage and split time in half, uh, he's going to come. Again, there is a second coming of Jesus. It's going to be an encore performance unlike any other. And as we look at Scripture, we don't really know everything as it relates to it. It's kind of, uh, but we have some information about it. It's kind of like a... I don't know if you saw the Marvel movies. Uh, my family, we've really enjoyed all of the Marvel universe of movies. And it seems that you always have to stay for all of the credits to finish rolling in those Marvel movies because they give you like this sneak peek of what's coming next. And, and, and you don't really know a whole lot, but you kind of get your appetite wet and you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait for the next movie or I can't wait for the next thing. That's a little bit of what Jesus did in his life and what we have in the New Testament. We have these little trailer clips, these little extra scenes, if you will, that we understand to know that one day Jesus is coming. We're going to win in the end, and it's going to be amazing when he has his encore performance. It's going to be one for, for the ages. Now, now I, I want to be really clear. When, when we talk about the life of Jesus and he, he, there's very little doubt that he was a historical figure. We know that he lived. In fact, it's not really a fairy tale. The story in the, of Scripture and the story of Jesus, it's not a fairy tale story. In other words, like when you read or listen to a movie, watch a movie, or you read a book, fairy tale books, we, we often have that like once upon a time in a land far, far away uh, or, or um, uh, in a galaxy far, far away. Like we have these like sci-fi movies that start in this way. When it comes to the story of Jesus, that's not actually how the story begins. See, all of the story of Jesus is actually rooted in historical accuracy. In other words, we use things like, while um, Caesar Augustus ruled. Well, that's a historical figure. You can go back and look and see, okay, Caesar Augustus really lived. So it helps us know the date and the times and the season that Jesus actually walked 
the earth. It says things like Jesus was crucified under a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Well, he was an actual Roman governor in that province, so he really was there. And when we talk about Roman crucifixion, when Jesus died on the cross, well, that kind of was the, the, the part where, man, it, it wasn't something to be celebrated. I know we use a cross today as some, like, item that we use as decoration or adornment, um, but to be honest, for the early church, it was not something to be adorned or thought beautiful at all. It was the symbol of the most gruesome, inhumane punishment available. It would be like us wearing a, a semi-automatic necklace around our neck today, right after a mass shooting. That seems asinine that we would even try and do something like that. But that's what it represented because the cross and the Roman crucifixion, it's an historical understanding and proof that that was how they murdered, how they put to death, how they made punishment. It wasn't something to be made light of. And, and I'm not saying that if you have a cross in your home, then you need to take it down because it's terrible. No, that's, that, that's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't, don't miss the point. The point is this, that the cross and Pilate and all of the little clues that we have in Scripture root the story in Jesus in actual historical um, events. In fact, in, in Jesus', uh, right after Jesus died, buried, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, when the church really began, when they would tell the story of Jesus and they would share the message of what Jesus did, and they would talk about this thing and that thing, like there were fact checkers back in that day. Like, there were people everywhere that, that would call them. If they were lying about the events that occurred, there were people that would say, you're a liar. I was there. That didn't happen. Like, so there was no room for, like, pulling people's legs. I mean, there were fact checkers in the Bible time well before CNN ever started holding town hall debates. Like, like fact checkers have been around from the beginning of time. And so one of the reasons why we can trust what the Scripture says is because during that day and during that time, it was rooted in historical events that we can verify through history, that we understand how things went, and it verifies what Scripture already tells us because we can look at history and the people that lived, and we can trust the fact that there were people that if they were lying about something, if they were spreading rumors about something, if they were willing to die and give their life for testimony of what they believed about Jesus, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died, that he was resurrected, that he's going to come again, that all of these, if, if that's really what happened and they were willing to give their life for it, there's some truth and some trust that we can put in that. There was a, a man by the name of Lee Strobel who uh, was a journalist uh, in, uh, in Chicago area, and uh, Lee Strobel uh, got really tired of Christianity being talked about. And he was a self-proclaimed atheist or an agnostic, and, and he really didn't want to believe in God at all. And so he thought that if he could prove that the resurrection never happened, that the crucifixion was just some trick, that he didn't really die, that they just pretended that he had died and put him in the tomb, like, like if he could prove those things, then surely he could disprove all of Christianity. And several years ago, they turned uh, Lee Strobel's story from a book into a movie. In fact, you can go on Netflix later today and you can watch the movie Case for Christ. See, what happened was as Lee Strobel was setting out to disprove Christianity, he actually discovered that it's an accurate account and it can be trusted. 
And if you can trust the, the historical accuracy of what the Bible says, then, then maybe, just maybe, Jesus is who he said that he was. And I, I actually want to encourage you this week, take some time with your older children and sit down and watch the movie Case for Christ. And, and look at the, the, the accuracy and the things that, that took a place and how he, the evidence and the logic and the reasoning and the understanding that he himself found as he sought these things out. But the reality is, we, we said last week that Jesus came and he took center stage. And one of the things that Jesus did when he took center stage was, was he laid on the cross to redeem humanity. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to redeem you and to redeem me, which tells us something. You and I need redeeming. There is something that needed to be bought back, something that needed to be paid for. We know that to be our sins. Look at Romans chapter 3. And again, I'm going to use a lot of scripture today. I'm going to read it quick because I want to get through this content. Um, so I want you to, to write down these references and go back later this week and, and reread some of these scriptures on your own. But Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read several verses from 9 through 24. It says this. It says, what, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the same power of sin. In other words, no matter who you are, if you are breathing, you were born under the power and control of sin in your life. Sin was your default operational mode. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who can really seek God on their own. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I want you to notice that Paul is writing and he's describing our human life right now. Even though that was centuries ago. He's describing our world broken, no good. Everything is falling apart where, where we, we can't hardly say anything kind with our mouths. We, we can try and do good things, but it doesn't really keep going on our own. It's inconsistent at best. He says there is no fear of God in their eyes. No. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of, their, of the law or their life. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And he wraps up by saying this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What's, what's Paul trying to say? When you were born, you were born depraved. You have a, there is a, a complete depravity within you. The operational, the operating system of your code of humanity is sinful. It's sinful. You and I were born in that way. See, Adam sinned long ago, and when he sinned, it brought sin into the world. And so it's kind of like a computer. When a computer gets a virus... 
and then you try to take files or do backups of a computer that's already got a virus embedded in it, every file that you transfer or every backup that you try to reinstall that's already got the virus embedded in it, it's just perpetuating the virus again and again and again. See, the operational system of humanity is sinful and full of sin. It's like this. When you were born, it's like this pen. You were born pointing in the direction of sin and death in your life. Like, you could, you could bend it and try and do good, try to go back to God, try and do the right thing, but eventually you're going to come right back to your natural direction that you're heading in your life. Why? Because the code of your life is sinful. The code that makes you operate, that makes you go, it's, it's born and written in a code of sin. This is why the cross is such good news. See, it doesn't matter how, how good you try and do, how, how much righteousness you try to do, how often you go to church, eventually you're going to point back to a life of sin. And this is why we believe that the cross purchased a vicarious redemption. In other words, there was a payment that had to be made, and Jesus paid it. That word vicarious, we would, we would remember it in terms of like trying to live vicariously through our kids trying to live through someone else? Well, you get to live as redeemed vicariously through Christ. You get to be considered righteous, and you can receive that redemption and righteousness of God, of Jesus, because of what Jesus did. It's vicarious through the cross of Jesus. Look, Romans 5 verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 21 says this. It says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the same ministry of reconciliation. Skip down to, to verse 20 and 21. It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Although God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, speaking of Jesus, to become sin for us so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What is that saying? That's saying that you were born pointing with an operating system moving in the direction of a sinful life. You can try and do good, but ultimately you come back to how your human nature is, which is sinful. But when you put your faith in Jesus, when you surrender your heart and the will of your life, and you begin to put your faith in what Jesus did at the cross, the vicarious redemption, God makes you brand new and, op and installs a brand new operating system. You're not a sinner that's now saved. No, you are a saint that's been made right in the eyes of God. And so by default, you are pointing in a righteous direction. Why? Because you have the very nature, the hardwiring, the, the, the embedding code of a righteous person. So, so sure, culture comes and it gets you tempted and you, you fall away and you, you start going the wrong direction and you can still make wrong decisions, but your default operation mode is righteous. 
And so it's when we, we sin or we do the wrong thing that all of a sudden then we go back and we get the opportunity to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I messed up. I blew it. I got angry at my kids. I got drunk and I shouldn't have. I, I manipulated this relationship or, or, or I was arrogant and I was bragging or, 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 or man, I just cheated on my taxes. I did the wrong thing. I lied. I, I cursed again, God. I, I did all of these things. And yes, you were pointing in the wrong direction. But the minute you ask for forgiveness and you, you, you receive grace in that moment, what happens? You, you get pointed right back on track. It's not about getting re-saved. Listen, you're already saved. You're already got a new operating system called righteousness, called salvation, called grace. It's in those moments when we do mess up, when we still try to go back to our old ways, when we act like the old self. It's in those moments. We don't have to get resaved. No. Your operating system is already there. You just need to run a, a little memory sweep and clean out the memory and clear the cache a little bit. And, and as G, I'm just getting a little nerdy today, y'all. Uh, my geek is showing, I know. And when you ask Jesus to forgive you of that again, what are you? you right back into place. You're right back in, into place. Why? Because there is a vicarious redemption that we get to be partakers of. Because one man's sin and through one man's sacrifice, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we who knew sin so well could now become the righteousness of God. We could do an about face and face God now. The resurrection itself, when Jesus came to take center stage, taking the redemption at the cross, dying, being buried, that was such a victorious moment. The resurrection proved Jesus victorious. Now, we just celebrated Easter. And again, I, I don't want to take a lot of time trying to prove the validity of the resurrection. We, we've done that many Easters before. And again, I encourage you to watch the Case for Christ movie where you really see a lot of detail found in that uh, account. And, and encourage you to do that. But I want you to see, see this. That when Jesus died, he fully died, right? Like he wasn't like temperate, like he was dead, dead. And he descended into hell and he resurrected again, proving him victorious over death and Hades. Look at Revelation chapter one. John is writing an account and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet talking about Jesus as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and Jesus said this, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, If Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he had to first descend into hell. He had to first go into Hades. Now, I want you to understand that the word Sheol in the original language and the word Hades, um, that was the term that they used in the first century to refer to the afterlife. In other words, when you died, you went to Sheol or you went to Hades. In fact, Jesus tells a story. I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was in the Hades part of the afterlife, and Lazarus was in um, the, 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 
the paradise side, if you will, or that this holding place where all of the righteous went. There was a, a place in the afterlife when, when you, your physical body died that you went to this, this holding area. And there was a huge gulf between where the wicked would go and where those God counted as righteous would go. And there's a huge gap in between. And they would often use this word sheol or hades in referencing to what is unseen into which the spirits of all persons who pass unto death. And when Jesus died, he went down to Hades, proved and paid the price. Went, if you will, think of it like a a human layaway plan, right? Jesus went to the layaway counter of the afterlife, looked at the devil who had the keys of death and Hades and said, "Um, I've now paid the price For all of these who are righteous, I'll take the keys. Their payment is now paid in full. They're coming with me in paradise. That's what Jesus told the thief who died next to him. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus was going to die a death that he didn't deserve, go down in the afterlife, taking the keys of death and Hades and say, hey, y'all who are righteous, let's go be with God in paradise now. See, Adam's sin gave Satan a power of attorney for humanity. Yet Jesus came, paid the price, fulfilled all of the requirements necessary to gain it back, took back it, wrote the paycheck, and took all of those on layaway to be with him. And so now all of those who are righteous have joined in paradise with Jesus, with God the Father, and they are what Hebrews refers to as a great cloud of witnesses celebrating and cheering for you and cheering for me. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God where he prays for you all the time. And when the enemy tries to accuse you of wrongdoing, Jesus is there to say, nope, I paid the price for that person's soul. They are saved. They're not pointing in the way of death and sin. No, no, they're pointing in the right direction. Oh, I know, you pulled them away for a minute. That tempted them in a direction. No, no, but they're still saved. They have a new operating system. There's an antivirus protection that I've installed in their life. It's called the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You can't touch them. That's what Jesus is doing right now in the courts of heaven. He's defending you and he's defending me as followers of Jesus. And it is his resurrection that proves him victorious over sin, over death, and over the grave. And that's why we worship him. That's why when Jesus took center stage, it was such a big deal. But that's not all that we believe. See, we believe that Jesus' return, his second coming as king, will be an encore that starts a brand new act. It's going to be one for the ages. It's going to be greater than the end game reveal in Marvel. It's going to be the best show. It's going to be amazing when Jesus comes back again. And as followers of him, it's important that we realize that we believe he's coming again. That this earth that we're living in right now, full of sin, full of decay, full of death, full of sadness, oh, it's not going to be the final. It's going to be renewed and recreated again in a perfect form, the way God wanted it. Look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. He says this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, and you can be also. Where I'm going, where, where, where I am, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. 
I'm going to bring you back. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his return to get the church, to get the believers, those who are following Jesus, to bring him, bring us to himself in that second coming. This return will be his greatest encore. But just like I said earlier, just like a, these Marvel movies where they had all of these clips and little trailer teasers at the end of their movies to kind of get you ready for the next movie or the next film or to tell you a little bit more of the story, that's a little bit of what we have in Scripture. We don't have full details of what's going to happen in the end. There's a big theological word. It's, it's called this. Are you ready for it? Eschatology. That's a, that's a high dollar. You got to pay a price to go to school to learn a bunch of these big words. But essentially, eschatology is just simply this the study of quote unquote last things. It's a theological study of what's going to happen at the end of time. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? Now, there are many, many details and a variety of theological perspectives as it relates to the study of the last things. And I'm not going to go in and try and articulate all of those details, all of those differing perspectives. I'm not going to go into detail today and try and dive into them. In fact, as a church, uh, we hold to the main things. There's a, there's a, we're not holding to a hard line as to when Jesus will come back or to what sequence of events some of these things will happen because I believe that the Bible gives us clues, but it's not really clear. And so we hold that very open-handedly. But there are a few things that we really hold to that we allow our roots to go into and that we allow our faith to be strengthened by. They, these are things like our, our faith is held in the facts that Jesus will return. No one knows when he's going to come back except God himself. There will be a rapture of the church. There will be a thousand-year reign of God's kingdom in, in the heavens. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Those are things that are clear. When they happen, the sequence of the events, the details surrounding them, what's the mark of the beast, what does the number 666 really mean, who's going to be the antichrist, like, we don't know. And God didn't tell us, I think, on purpose. But there are a few things that we do know, like there will be a tribulation. Matthew 24, Jesus tells us, you will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of the birth pains. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect, that's you and I as followers of Jesus, from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of Man. Only the Father knows. So we know there's going to be tribulation. And we know there'll be a day Jesus comes and gets us. But anytime you hear somebody predict the day and the hour and the time and the year that Jesus is coming again, you can take it to the bank. They're wrong. Because Jesus said no one's going to know. You don't know when it's happening or when it will happen. But when it does happen, you'll know. You'll know. 
In fact, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 says it like this. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who sleep so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's words himself, we tell you that we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so will be, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Encourage each other with these words until I come. So we know that he's going to come and what's called rapture the church, bring the church to him at some point. And then we, we also know that his encore performance is going to eventually entail the recreation of heaven and earth and we get to spend eternity with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. And, and I want to encourage you with these words today because we're facing all sorts of craziness in our world. There's a virus there is no cure to yet. There's pandemic and fear, rumors that are spreading all over. We definitely know there's been wars and rumors of war and earthquakes and pestilence and things that, that we don't have explanation for other than that we know the earth itself is in pains like labor, Jesus said. But here's the hope. Here's the good news. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, and he who is seated on the throne, I am said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Moms, I know you can relate that there's a moment where you're trying to comfort your children, where they're crying, where they're confused, where they're hurt, and you don't have a good explanation. There's a lot of things we can't explain right now in our world other than it's like growing and birthing pains of something new. But there will come a day when Jesus comes back for an encore performance. He takes center stage yet again in all of our world, and there will be a day in that process, in that, in that second act, where this world that is so hurting, so broken, it's been made new again. And, and what happens? This new heaven, this new earth, God gets to live with humanity and dwell among the people of God yet again. Friends, the beginning of this whole world started because God created a place where he could live and walk and talk with Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin screwed it all up and distorted it all. 
but ultimately God's greatest desire to be present and near with you and me will happen again when a new heaven and a new earth show up and our king shows up for his encore. He takes center stage once again and he makes everything new again and all of the pain and brokenness is gone. Friends, what what does all this mean? I want to talk to those of you that have been following Jesus for, for a long time. Can I just encourage you with something? The enemy of your soul is less concerned with microchips, the number 666, and marks of the beast with cloning, but rather he is most concerned with keeping you trapped by your self-righteousness, keeping you lashing out in anger, keeping you addicted to porn and, and your sexual preferences, keeping you manipulating, gossiping, slandering, disrespecting others, and living without an eternal purpose. If you get distracted by what's going to happen and can we decode it and when's he coming back and how can we prove it, and he is less concerned with you figuring that out. He's fine with you wasting your time trying to figure that out, to be honest. Because he, he would much rather you live distracted so that the fruit of the Spirit isn't evident where people can't see that Jesus is alive in you. Let's not get distracted by the side things. Let's keep in mind that Jesus, he's going to come again. And in the end, when he comes, you'll know it. And until that time, let's give our lives to being ready. Let's be ready. So I say, this is what we do. I say we live like Jesus is alive because he is. I say we, we live like Jesus is praying for us because he is. And I say we live like Jesus is coming again because he is. Our world may be broken, sinful, decay, and full of suffering, but Jesus will overcome it all. So let's live today like Jesus is alive, like he's worthy of all of our praise and adoration, like he did something that no one else has done. I say we live like that. I say we live like Jesus is praying for us. So we don't let shame stop us. We don't let comparison control us. We don't let um, our own selfish desires manipulate us. No, we recognize Jesus is praying for us, and when we need help, he's there to help us. And I say we live like he's coming again that we do everything that we possibly can to be as clear about who Jesus is, that he loves us, that he died for us, that he rose again, that he wants to restore all things. This is why we believe that for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's why we believe that he suffered a death and he was buried. That's why we believe that on the third day, he rose again, just like the scripture said. And this is why we believe he ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom, it's not going to ever end. And that's why we believe that we can look forward to the resurrection of the dead, of his second coming, and the life of the world that is to come That's what we believe. Let the roots of your faith sink into these truths today. And let's live like Jesus is still alive, like he's praying for you, and like he's coming again, and we will win. Let me pray for you today. Jesus, there are so many that that are hurting 
that are broken, that are feeling the ramifications of sin that's run rampant in our world. Why are there so many sick among us? It's because sin entered the world. Why is there pain and suffering? It's because sin is a real virus problem. And the only antivirus for it is your blood that was poured out on the cross and are choosing to receive what you did. Lord, by default, so many of us are operating systems. When we were born, are sinful operating systems. But Lord, when we put our faith in you, you install a new life. The old is gone and the new has come again, like 2 Corinthians 5 says. So, Lord, so many of us, we've experienced that new life, that rebirth, that second birth, that, that, that newness that you bring in us. And, God, we are so grateful for it. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling, that are hurting. Lord, may we take hope today in knowing that this world, it may pass away and be recreated. But our faith in you, Lord, that's what's going to bring us into a, a, a new place, God, where we get to participate in the encore Jesus, you're going to take center stage again in our world. You're going to come again, and that encore will be amazing. Lord, we, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to be ready. We want to be prepared. We want to live like you're alive, live like you're praying for us, and live like you are coming again soon. Lord, I, I pray that today for every house and every person listening that you would bless them you would keep us you would make your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us you would lift up your countenance towards us and you would give us peace in the name of the father who loves us in the name of the son who died for us in the name of the spirit who lives within us we pray amen grace and peace happy mother's day we love you Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If you're if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.